Hello and welcome to the program. This is episode nine of For All Time. I am Don Johnson and it is January 24th, a Monday, 2.50 p.m. And I'm just looking through People Magazine real quick. And before we start the program, I have to say happy birthday to J. Cole, 37, born January 28th, 1985, Phil Collins, 71, January 30th, 1951, and Minnie Driver, who's 52, born January 31st, 1970. I'm sure those are all legitimate birthdays. Happy birthday to uh, those people as long as they're um, not canceled, right? Yeah. So let's uh, take a look here. At our first article, we're going to be looking at a number of great articles today, um, all from, I think, today's papers. Um, and then also we're going to take a little look at a book by a man named Hideo Kojima, um, who recently just put out something that I think is uh, quite worth paying a little bit of attention to, at least if you're right. But let me start off here. Uh, we're going to get into a little local news later, but uh, first I'm going to cover something that, uh, <laughs> well, packages go missing amid rail robberies. This will be in uh, the business and finance section of today's Wall Street Journal. Michelle Wilde bought a piece of sand art during a visit to Jerome, Arizona earlier this month. Rather than carry it home, she had the shopkeeper ship the $145 frame to her. And this is written by Paul Ziorbro in New York and Ian Lovett in Los Angeles. Instead of arriving at her home in Everett, Washington, the package ended up next to a railroad track in East Los Angeles. The frame was gone. The box remained. It was among thousands of boxes recently found littered along the Union Pacific Corp tracks in the middle of Los Angeles. The inset is a picture of it. It looks quite unbelievable. The thieves broke into the train cars and made off of the items shipped by Dr. Uh, Martins, Har oh, Doc Martins, Harbor Freight Tools, and small businesses alike. The scene set off finger-pointing between the railroad, local officials, and police about who's to blame and how to stop a modern twist on one of the country's oldest crimes. Yes, that is uh, the great train robbery, America's favorite crime. Why are people breaking into rail cars and why is no one doing anything, Ms. Wilde said when she was contacted by the Wall Street Journal reporter to inform her of the fate of her package. We're like in year 13 of a pandemic, so nothing surprises me about human behavior, <laughs> she said. Union Pacific said it has seen a 160% jump in criminal rail theft in Los Angeles since December 2020. <laughs> a very good way of saying uh, how much increase there has been without saying how much you started with to begin with. Um, including sharper increases in the months leading up to Christmas when trailers are loaded with inventory bound for stores or gifts shipped to homes. We are basically diving into the fact that rail cars have been have gone looted and and completely um, the situation <laughs> has gone completely overlooked for apparently like a, a very long time. Um, uh, let's see, they're being targeted heist style. I mean, what the picture I'm looking at? There's literally thousands of open packages strewn between. Uh, Two overpasses over a railway. Um, it's quite clearly been going on for a very long time. This isn't like a limited time thing. And also it's in plain open view in the daylight. Anyone could just walk past and see this or 
you know, anyone who works at the train who carries all the cargo could go through and say, hey, the last time we went through with the, some FedEx crates, you know, uh, a, a, I don't know, some of them disappeared and here are all the packages. I, I just can't. Anyway. Why are people breaking into rail cars and why is no one doing anything? We're like in Europe 13, the pandemic. Something that surprises me about human behavior. Union Pacific said it has seen a 160% jump in criminal rail theft in Los Angeles since December 2020, according to sharper increases in months leading up to Christmas when trailers are loaded with inventory bound for stores or gifts shipped to homes. The total losses to Union Pacific with a market capitalization of $155 billion have come to $5 million over the past year. However, that doesn't include losses tallied by customers shipping on its rails, which I'm going to guess are most. In other parts of the country, thieves occasionally plunder everything from alcohol to appliances from freight trains that either stop or crawl through areas. All right. That all makes sense based on this image. The railroads combat the problem with their own police forces. The Union Pacific has more than 200 police officers, but they must patrol thousands of miles of track across 23 states. Lance Fritz, Union Pacific's, Union Pacific's chief executive officer, says rail theft has been a mostly small-scale problem. What is happening in Los Angeles is... Uh, well, let me think of some things while I'm turning the page. Common, bold, all over the place, very visible... Incredibly overlooked. Um, but let me continue what it actually says. Different. Oh, it's different. A couple of years ago, opportunistic individuals might see a mile-plus long train itching through, uh, inching through the city and pry open a car to see what was inside, maybe grab a few items, he said. But today, that's more organized. The tracks being hit connect to an international Union Pacific rail yard where containers are moved between tracks and trains. The rail corridor carries containers from nearby ports as well as trailers filled with packages from Amazon.com Inc., FedEx Corp., and United Parcel Service, which are bound for other sorting hubs across the United States. It also makes you wonder about packages that are on the train that are either placed on the train at point of origin or placed along the path that the train might move, and which are then removed on the other end, invisibly moving cargo across the country. That would be incredibly easy to do based on everything that I'm reading here. Um, let's see. This month, local news footage showing packages strewn along the tracks went viral. On Thursday, empty packages were piled on the sidewalks near the rails. As trains rolled by, rail cars could be seen with their doors hanging open. Union Pacific... Uh, complained in December in a letter to Los Angeles officials that they weren't doing enough to police the area and prosecute individuals caught trespassing. Adrian Guerrero, oh, now the Coke is, the Coca-Cola is kicking in. I can feel the caffeine vibing through my veins. Adrian Guerrero, a general director of public affairs at Union Pacific, said lenient prosecution means many of those arrested for rifling through rail cars have their charges reduced to a misdemeanor or petty offense and are often quickly released. Apparently they think that's the solution. Quote, we don't, we just don't see the criminal justice system holding these people accountable, Mr. Guerrero said. In a letter responding to Mr. Guerrero said on Friday, Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon said the number of cases submitted to his office in which Union Pacific was listed as a victim has fallen of the past two years, from 78 cases in 2019 to 47 in 2021. Well, I would say also it's more less likely that they're even investigating. They're probably investigating less of the scenarios if they consider it 
such a minor crime and the fact that anyway doesn't matter because the DA brought the charges in 55% of those cases anyway so they don't even so that's why it's it's becoming an issue that is being completely overlooked because they don't care and ultimately I'm sure at the end of the day insurance is just paying for it and it's more of a headache to do anything about it and make waves than just cover some minor insurance fees um Let's see. The DA brought the charges in 55% of those cases. Um, mostly dismissed for a lack of evidence or because they didn't involve allegations of burglary, theft, or tampering. So that would be shrinkage, internal loss. It is very telling that other major railroad operations in the area are not facing the same level of theft that their facilities as UP. There you go. It's, an inside, it's been an inside uh, job. That's what they're implying. Mr. Gascon wrote, My office is not tasked with keeping your sites secure. Los Angeles Police Captain German Hurtado, who works in the Hollenbeck Station covering the area, said Union Pacific had downsized its police force in 2020, leaving the company with six officers patrolling between Yuma, Arizona and the Pacific Coast. Resignations in COVID-19 have left the LAPD shortly, short roughly 2,000 officers, he said, including 50 his station, I'm sure. That's affecting this specific scenario. The LAPD has run several task forces around the tracks, he said, and since August has arrested about 125 people for rail-related offenses, including burglary and trespassing. UP executives said they added dozens of agents in recent months to patrol the area in Los Angeles and are using drones, specialized fencing, and trespass detection systems to combat the theft. All right, they're getting very like uh, cyberpunk corpo on this situation here. Uh, or just, you know, contemporary security. The railroad said it's looking to hire more officers. While we have a private police force, fun, they do not supplant the vital need for authority of local law enforcement. A spokeswoman said. California Governor Gavin Newsom visited the scene Thursday. He touted part of his proposed budget, which would grant $255 million to local law enforcement over the next three years and create a unit to focus on retail, train, and auto theft. Quote, there's nothing acceptable about this, Mr. Newsom said of the thefts. It looked like a third world country, end quote. I hate to break it to you, sir, but it looks like uh, Los Angeles in the United States, as this picture is demonstrating. It is your city. It is a first world nation, as you were describing it in your nomenclature. Jim Foote, the CEO of CSX Corp., another freight railroad that operates in the eastern U.S., said rail theft elsewhere isn't as rampant as what he has seen happening in Los Angeles. He recalls 20 years ago, while working for Canadian National Railway, there was a similar problem in Chicago. To deal with it, the railroad tried to avoid stopping trains where they were getting ransacked. Hmm. We do everything we can to protect our customer shipments. But if the train stops at the wrong time in the wrong place, the modern day Jesse James will get you, Mr. Foote said. <laughs> Mr. Foote has a very good perspective on this. A FedEx spokeswoman said it has measures in place to discourage theft, including advanced locking mechanisms on rail cars. Apparently, doesn't matter. Not working. In cases where rail cars are tampered with, FedEx works with the railroads to retrieve any shipments they can. A UPS spokesman said it would take a collective response to deter criminals from and the company has streamlined the claims process for when there are issues with shipments. There you go. Once again, reinforcing what I said before, uh, they don't care. 
they're just going to make sure that the insurance payouts come probably, <laughs> I mean, at a great headache and expense or, you know, less and less headache since they've uh, streamlined it. So you just pay out and then, you know, that's how trains work. We're just back to accepting that trains are being robbed, which is cool, you know. Great. It's a good job. Any, anyone? There you go. Uh, you know, they're talking about the shrinking workforce. Tiniest, littlest percentage of people out there are getting back to the old days and wild westing it out in the rails. Who doesn't love that? Who does not love that? Um, here's a little something from the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Goodbye, hotel front desk. Hello, texting robot. The concierge is getting a high-tech upgrade. She was so chic and witty. By Alina Dizik. Your next hotel's concierge might not be in the same time zone as your room, or sentient. Larger chains and smaller inns are moving past the custom of having guests press zero on a landline to ask for that extra hotel towel. Instead, properties have turned to text messages. That means requests could get answered by someone in another, in another state, a bot, or a digital spider monkey. <clears throat> Someone's getting contemporary. Photographer Andrew Gallery requested a bottle opener and extra glasses at the Lowe's Santa Monica Beach Hotel in California via the hotel's Chat Your Service app during a recent stay. Quote, I just feel like it's some happy vert person who is down to help. <laughs> I'll read that quote one more time. I just feel like it's some happy person who's down to help, said Mr. Gallery, who lives in Los Angeles. Of the help he received... Quote, but, okay, but you're expecting someone down to chill, and instead you got a bot. Here we go. But I'm not 100% sure if it's people on the other end. He wanted people on the other end. The Lowe's uses off-site employees 2,000 miles away to answer texts or phone calls, says manager Laura Lowell, who oversees staff of 14 agents at the company's management center in Franklin, Tennessee. Most guests never think to ask who is answering them, she says. These staffers field common requests, including housekeeping and restaurant reservations within minutes, without involving the hotel's concierge team. The team isn't quick to share their actual location. Quote, we always say we're an extension of the front desk, she says. This shift to texting and automated responses has happened as a way to cope with staffing shortages, hotel executives say. Some services are offered via artificial intelligence. Quote, it's easier to get their needs met and it's less intrusive, says Tina Edmondson, global brand and marketing officer at Marriott International, Inc., based in Bethesda, Maryland. The volume of text sent via Marriott's app tripled in 2021 from the year prior, with some hotels needing to reshuffle their dates to meet the needs of guests, Ms. Edmondson says. For the past six years, Marriott brands, including Moxie Hotels and Weston, have offered guests the option to use the Marriott Bonvoy app to communicate directly with hotel staff. Text replies have come in from a mix of hotel staffers and automated responses based on request. Based on the request. A weekend trip to Mexico... On a weekend trip to Mexico, Tracy saw, let's start one more time. On a weekend trip to Mexico, Tracy Shaw was ready for a, quote, break from everything, even talking to hotel staff. The Encantada Hotel in Tulum let her text them instead. 
Throughout the long weekend, Ms. Shaw, a 45-year-old marketing manager from Tampa, Florida, used WhatsApp to request morning coffee on her terrace, strawberry margaritas at the beach, and pre-dinner tequila shots in her room. Dashing, uh, dashing off texts was less awkward than calling to the front desk, she says. This is not something I pick up the phone for, says Ms. Shaw. It's literally something you're supposed to pick up the phone for, but uh, I guess now we don't have to. It is difficult, even in a scenario, for, for some people, it is difficult, even in a scenario where um, the point is to do this, you know, people are being compensated to do this, but it, it is, it, it can it feel, it can feel awkward to make the requests that you're kind of expected to, even at a resort where it's built around that experience, it can be... I understand the the thought process there, but allow me to continue. This is not something I picked up the phone for, says Miss Shaw, who stayed at the hotel with her husband in December. <clears throat> we were totally spoiled. Cassie Down, a publicist, checked into the Cosmopolitan in Las Vegas, who was relieved to find Rose, which the hotel describes as the resident mischief maker and digital concierge, answering her requests. Ms. Down, who tested positive for COVID-19 shortly after checking in, for her family vacation and, quote, couldn't roll over to pick up the phone, was less self-conscious about making requests by text. Ms. Down says Rose texted her with, uh, texted her that when I'm in a good mood, I tend to be generous with friends. The bot helped arrange delivery of two nights of pizza dinners and a tube of toothpaste from the sundry shop downstairs and relayed Ms. Down's request for the extra towels and tissues to be left by the door. Honestly, she was so chic and witty, says Miss Down, 30, who lives in San Diego. Real estate broker Susan Harrison spent the weekend of New Year's exchanging texts with Johnny Brown, a computerized spider monkey at the Colony Hotel in Palm Beach, Florida. I just want to read that one more time. Real estate broker Susan Harrison spent the weekend of New Year's exchanging texts with Johnny Brown, in quotes, a computerized spider monkey at the Colony Hotel in Palm Beach, Florida. Think about that for a second. What I just said, computerized spider monkey running a hotel. Ms. Harrison, who lives in New York, enjoyed that all the messages she received were signed with a monkey emoji and a cheery tone. Her, <laughs> her requests about Advil and exercise classes and dinner reservations were addressed in minutes. After booking a table for eight people, she was assured that she would be seated at the winning table. The hotel, which has had the monkey as its mascot since 2016, says guests like the efficiency of texting, an option it started suffering. It started offering in 2020. Hyatt Hotels is deploying. Hmm. Medallia Zingle. Yeah, I'm going to say that's what it's called. Hyatt Hotels is deploying Medallia Zingle a text messaging software across more than 1,000 hotels in 68 countries. Employees are encouraged to show personality, including using emojis or lighthearted language whenever possible, says Julia Vander Plog, Hyatt's global head of digital and technology. I love being the head of digital and technology. The top request is for bottled water. I love asking Medallia Zingle for bottled water at my Hyatt hotel. Concierges for the Pendry Chicago offers to guests by their last... Oh. Hmm. 
Concierges at the Pendry Chicago refer to their guests by their last name and title via text. Use sign-offs that include at your service and are careful to scan for typos. Emoji, <laughs> everyone else? No. Them? Yes. Emojis and informal greetings are effectively banned, concierge Alex Yu says. Some guests admit they miss the small talk. After using text to arrange rides within the resort at Paws Up, a 37,000-acre luxury ranch in Grinnell, uh, Montana, uh, Rich Burt, a retired audio engineer from Orlando, Florida, realized he needed more than just efficiency. The three-word texts he exchanged with his driver were convenient, but he prefers picking up the phone and talking about his day. I'm more old-fashioned, he says. Raj Singh created an AI-powered concierge named Ivy that was used that is used in 3,000 hotels. He estimates that roughly half the hotels offer messaging services. Mr. Singh, now chief strategy officer at Revenate, a hotel software provider based in San Francisco, says texting with Ivy is meant to feel like texting with a fun, in-the-know friend. But even the best chatbots stumble at some queries. A recent one, uh, quote, Actually, this might be a weird question. Are the bathroom windows see-through from the outside? Ivy referred that query to a human. I'm going to say probably not. Maybe. But probably not. And, um, yeah, I'm glad that was directed to a human. (laughs) But you might want to fill in that question if it's frequently asked. Oh, boy. Well, Dope Hotel. Clearly good, obviously very expensive, and worth the money, all those 3,000 slash 1,000 hotels. Allow us to continue. Hmm. Oh, hey. Now, today the stocks were crashing, but here were the top movers at the uh, beginning of, well, let's see, at the end of last week, Activision Blizzard, 24.4%. Um, Take Two Interactive, 8%. Electronic Arts, 6.6%. So those buys there, the reason that Take Two and Electronic Arts are bouncing on the week, well, were last week, probably. Who knows? But relative to everything, they were bouncing, um, is because Activision Blizzard went up 25%. And if you look at a short list of companies that could be bought, those companies probably have the most potential to make you money and will be bought. The most likely to be bought would be EA and take to the makers of Grand Theft Auto and many others, but mostly that. They also own Gearbox, who makes Borderlands and stuff like that. Let me take a look at this. Oh, nope. Sports. Oh, hey, here's a here's a fun little snapshot, too. Top paid iPhone apps. App Store official charts for the week ending January 18th. Minecraft, Mojang, number one. <laughs> Move from five up to number one. Here we go. Number two, Five Nights at Freddy's. Two, uh, three, Five Nights at Freddy's and Five Nights at Freddy's two, four, Ultimate Custom Night. This is that's a Five Nights at Freddy's game. Number five, Five Nights at Freddy's four. Great. So that's what's going on with the kids. Here's a little something about uh, style star Naomi Campbell. Supermodel Naomi Campbell stepped out for Dior's Paris-themed uh, 
Paris Fashion Week show in a Friday in a monochrome black mesh outfit featuring a jewel-encrusted Dior sa- uh, saddlebag, a shimmering mesh-collared top, a long black overcoat, oversized trousers, pointed heels, and aviator shades. And uh, try not to uh, Google Naomi Campbell and um, any situation she might be entangled to of uh, current events you may have heard or I might have talked about. Here's something lovely. Fort Myers City Council plans to consider options in repainting City of Palms parking garage. This is written by Bill Smith, local celebrity, I'm sure. Uh, a familiar site in downtown Fort Myers will apparently look the same for some time to come, despite suggestions that its salmon pink color needs replacing. City council members were reluctant to pay the $70,000 to $80,000 city council manager Marty Lawing said would be needed to repaint the city of Palms garage facing Bay Street and the Caloosahatchee River, but noted the garage needs some work. Lawing said the city has money in the city parking fund that could pay for the repainting. Quote, it can absorb the cost, Lawing said. The revenues are coming in strong, at least for this year. Deputy Budget Director Christine Tenney said taking seventy to $80,000 to pay for the paint job comes as the city was planning to work on the structure. There are a lot of costly structural repairs needed at the City of Palms garage. The same one that we are looking at painting, so that would be a priority. It is now 25 years old. So, let me skip ahead. Um, I don't call it an ugly building we agreed on it so many years ago street said i like the color and when i say that not to put anybody on the spot but if you look at our human resources director she's got on that color and there's nothing ugly about that color and there you go that's the end of that story uh here's something in the post today's post armenian president armin sarkisian Tenured his resignation Sunday, claiming the country's constitution does not give him sufficient powers to influence events. Sarkisian, president since 2018, was in a standoff with Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan last year over a number of issues, including the dismissal of the head of the armed forces. The office of prime minister is seen as more powerful than that of president, says the Post. I have been thinking for a long time. I have decided to resign from the post of President of the Republic after working actively for about four years, Sarkissian said on his official website. The question may arise to why the President failed to influence the political events that led us to the current national crisis. The reason is obvious. Again, the lack of appropriate tools. The Constitution, the roots of some of our potential problems, are hidden in the current basic law. Capitalized BL. At a referendum in December 2015, Armenia became a parliamentary republic, while presidential powers were significantly curtailed. It's an article from Reuters. I do not have additional context on that, but I'm keeping track of the story and informing myself so that I can give some kind of informed um, reading at some point. I will continue. Yemeni still offline. Most of Yemen faced a third day without internet on Sunday after airstrikes in the Red Sea city of Hodeya, the main landing point for the country's undersea web connection, damaged its telecoms infrastructure. In the capital, Sana'a, Majid Abdullah said he was unable to receive money from relatives in Saudi Arabia and an exchange office as a result of the outage. Quote, 
I don't know what to do. We eat and drink from the money sent by expatriates abroad, he said. Seven years of conflict had divided Yemen between internationally recognized government in Aden and the Iran-aligned Houthi group in Sana'a. It remains unclear when repairs in Hodea will be carried out. That's another Reuters report. All right. One more thing to wrap up the post. I just want to read about this dope-ass sitch here. Kanye West and Julia Fox are red carpet official, wearing matching double denim photo right, looking stunning. The couple turned up at the heat over the weekend with Fox sporting a tray fashion jacket featuring a conical bra by Shirapelli. The pair attended the Kenzo Fashion Show as part of the Paris Fashion Week. Fans on social media compared their ensembles to the denim looks of former lovebirds Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. Uh, as worn to the American Music Awards in 2001. Britney and Justin did wear it better, one person tweeted, and another adding, Britney and Justin worked, walked, so yay and Julia could run. They look fantastic. I hope they're having fun. Today they're wearing, like, uh, all kinds of cool, like, leather fetish gear on the, on the scene. So they're they're chilling. They're doing it right. They're just doing it out there. Okay, let me take a look here. Yes, yes, yes. All right. This is the New York Times business section uh, today's paper. How much are you willing to pay for a burrito? By Julie Cresswell. On a chilly Tuesday afternoon this month, James Marsh stopped by a Chipotle near his suburban Chicago home to grab something to eat. It had been a while since Mr. Marsh had been to Chipotle. He estimated he goes five times a year, and he stopped so uh, he stopped cold when he saw the prices. Quote, I have been getting my usual, a steak burrito, which had been maybe around the mid-eight dollar range, said Mr. Marsh, who trades stock options at his home in Hinsdale, Illinois. Now it was more than nine dollars. He walked out. Allow me to continue. The pandemic has led to price spikes in everything from pizza slices in Manhattan, as we discussed in our very first episode, to sides of beef in Colorado. Let's do a little research on that. And it has led to more expensive items on the menus at fast food chains, traditionally establishments where people are used to grabbing a quick bite that doesn't hurt their wallet. At a Chipotle in Costa Mesa, California, the price of a chicken burrito, nothing fancy, hold the guacamole, about a year ago was $7.25. These days... The same burrito costs around seven dollars and ninety-five cents. Mm-hmm. Doing the math. All right. A year. Seventy cent increase in a year. A seven dollar and twenty-five cent item to seven ninety-five is approximately a. Let's call it a ten percent increase. Let's call it that. In one year. Now. As far as I know, inflation sitting at around 7% year over year. And, I mean, let's all do the math in our heads. Think about it in our heads. Arrive at the uh, feeling we have in our heads about the price and the fact that it's a 10% year over year increase. And then move on. And just 
keep it in our heads. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, a Shack Burger at Shake Shack used to cost $5.69. It's now $6.09. Continuing on B2. In an Oklahoma City, an order of 50 bone-in wings from Wingstop that cost $41.99 early last year is now $47.49, a 13% price increase. Last year, the price of menu items at fast food restaurants rose 8%, its biggest jump in more than 20 years, according to government data, and in some cases, portions have shrunk. In recent years, most, this is a quote, in recent years, most fast food restaurants had, maybe, raised prices in the low single digits each year, said Matthew Goodman, an analyst at M Science, an alternative data research and analytics firm. What we have seen over the last six plus months are restaurants being aggressive in pushing through prices. This comes at a time when the hyper-competitive fast food market is booming. Chains like McDonald's, Chipotle, and Wingstop were big winners of the pandemic as consumers stuck at home, working, and tired of cooking multiple meals for their families increasingly turned to them for convenient solutions. But in the past year, as the cost of ingredients rose and the average hourly wage increased 16% to $16.10 in November from a year earlier, according to government data, restaurants began to quietly bump up prices. But making customers pay more for a burger or a burrito is a tricky art. For many restaurants, it involves complex algorithms and test markets. They need to walk a fine line between raising prices enough to cover expenses while not scaring away customers. Moreover, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. Chains that are operated by franchisees typically allow individual owners to decide pricing. And national chains like Chipotle and Shake Shack charge different prices in various parts of the country. When Carol's Restaurant Group, which operates more than 1,000 Burger Kings, raised prices in the second half of last year, the number of customers actually improved from the third to the fourth quarter. Quote, over time, we generally have not seen a whole lot of pushback from the consumers on the higher prices, Carol's chief executive, Daniel T. Accordino, told analysts at a conference in early January. All right. Menu prices are likely to continue to climb this year. Many restaurants say they are still paying higher wages to attract employees and expect food prices to continue rising. We expect unprecedented, this is a quote, we expect unprecedented increases in our food basket costs versus 2021. Rich Allison, the chief executive of Domino's Pizza, told Wall Street analysts at a conference this month. Food basket costs. I'm going to have to look up basket costs. While Domino's hasn't raised prices, it is alternating its promotions, offering the $7.99 pizza deal only to customers online and shrinking the number of chicken wings in certain promotions from 8 to 10 in an effort to maintain profit margins. Oh, 2.8 from 10. Despite higher food and labor costs, some restaurants are seeing sales and profits rebound from past pre-pandemic levels. When McDonald's reports uh, when McDonald's reports earnings this month, Wall Street analysts expect that its revenues will have hit a 5-year high of more than 23 billion dollars, 
and $2 billion increased over 2019. Net income is predicted to top $7 billion, up from $6 billion in 2019. Other chains like Cracker Barrel and Darden Restaurants, which owns Olive Garden and Longhorn Steakhouse, have resumed dividend payments or cash buybacks of stock after suspending those activities early in the pandemic to conserve cash. And next month, when Chipotle reports results for 2021, analysts expect revenues to top $7.5 billion, a 34% jump from 2019. Net income is expected to almost double from pre-pandemic levels in the third quarter. The company uh, repurchased nearly $100 million of its stock. Chipotle declined to make an executive available for an interview, citing the quiet period ahead of its earnings release, which is typical. You typically don't want to make comments before an earnings release because you want to make sure that the analysis that you've done is consistent up to the point when you release the report. So fair enough. While Chipotle executives blamed higher labor costs for a 4% increase in price in menu items this summer, the company had been looking for ways to boot its profitability. One way is to charge higher prices for delivery, delivery Orders through vendors like DoorDash and Uber Eats exploded for Chipotle and other fast food chains during the pandemic, but so did the commission fees that Chipotle paid the vendors. So in the fall of 2020, it began running tests to see what would happen if it raised prices of burritos and guacamole and chips that customers ordered for delivery. Executives told Wall Street analysts in an earnings call it essentially meant the customer converted Chipotle's side of the delivery costs. Covered. Yes, we did. I'm sure we did. It's, it's, it, it, it goes... You'd have to be completely unobservant of what Chipotle costs in the store versus when you deliver get it delivered to ignore that. I mean, it's it's very much obvious. Um, oh, let's see. The company discovered customers were willing to pay for the convenience of delivery. Of course. Now, customers ordering Chipotle for delivery pay about 21% more than if they had ordered and picked up the food in stores according to analysis by Jeff Farmer and an analyst at Gordon Haskett Research Advisors. There. Oh, I just did the research for you, too, for free. But let's continue. Quote, I would say that our ultimate goal, so this would be over the long term, maybe the medium term, is to fully protect our margins, said Jack Hartung, the chief financial officer of Chipotle, on a call with Wall Street analysts last fall. Excuse me. When you look at our pricing versus other restaurant companies for the quality of the food, the quantity of the food, and the quality and convenience of the experience, we offer great value. So we believe we have room to fully protect the margin, the profit margin, that is. That doesn't mean that customers are thrilled about the extra costs. This month, Jacob Harum, a data scientist in Lakewood, Colorado, placed an order. A steak and guacamole burrito for $11.95 and a Coca-Cola for $3, and chips and guacamole, which were free, with a birthday coupon. The total was $14.95 before tax. But when he clicked to have the food delivered, the price for the burrito jumped to $14.45, and the soda climbed to $3.65, bringing the total to $18.10 before tax, 21% more than if he had picked the food himself. Once again, there you go, doing the research of a Wall Street analyst to the exact percentage by just simply trying to order it at home. There was more. Mr. Herlin was charged a delivery fee of $1 and another service fee of $2.32, bringing the total to the delivered meal to $23.20. He tipped the driver an additional $3. Mr. Herlin said he did not mind paying for the delivery and wanted drivers to be paid a decent wage. 
there. He felt that Chipotle wasn't being upfront with customers about the added costs. They're not. Quote, they're basically hiding the fees two different ways, through that base price increase and through a hidden service fee. Mr. Herlin said in an email, I would very much prefer if they had the same pricing and were just honest about a $5 delivery fee. I agree. Everyone agrees. That is definitely the situation. Two notes. One, I would say at the very beginning, the options trader who is uh, complaining about an 8 to $9, you know, a dollar or dollar and change, you know, difference in your burrito you have five times a year from chipotle which is even like a great burrito on its own like i mean yes it's fine it's completely acceptable but if you're an options trader, you could have any kind of burrito that you possibly want in your town and if the fact you're complaining about a one dollar increase is absolutely fucking unbelievable well believable and uh <laughs> it's completely believable believable in the worst possible way um yes i would also say that uh, I agree with the service fee situation. I would say that just maybe um, get rid of the entire service fee and just say like, hey, having this burger so you can eat it at your house will cost $20. Done. That would be it. That would be the best solution. But as we know, fees are the ways that you get your profit margins in situations like this. So there we go. Uh, I would also note that they could have interviewed McDonald's and Chipotle simultaneously for um, this entire scenario because McDonald's did own Chipotle until, I believe, 2009. And they sold their uh, foothold at some point. They no longer have any interest in it, I believe. But that's that. Let's see. What else? Here we go. Here's a little something fun. All right. Roles of FBI and informants muddle governor kidnap case. This is the front page in the New York Times, bottom uh, right corner. It's going to continue to A15. I'm just going to read a little bit of this. On a rainy night in northern Michigan on September 2020, a group of armed men divided among three cars surveyed the landscape around the vacation cottage of Governor Gretchen Whitmer, considering how to kidnap her as payback for her COVID-19 lockdown measures. This is written by Neil McFarquhar. Two men descended from the lead car to inspect a bridge on Route 31 in nearby Elk Rapids, assessing what was needed to blow it up and delay police response to the house on nearby Birch Lake. Later, after team members returned to the rural camp where they had already conducted military-style training exercises, a man identified as, quote, Big Dan in government documents asked the assembled group, Everybody down with what's going on? Another man responded, If you are not down with the thought of kidnapping... Don't sit here. (laughs) Of the dozen men on that nighttime surveillance mission, four of them, including, quote, Big Dan, were either government informants or undercover FBI agents, according to court documents. The events of that night will be a key element when, on March 8th, five men charged with plotting to abduct the Democratic governor from her vacation cottage will go on trial in U.S. District Court in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That trial is being closely watched as one of the most significant uh, 
There we go. It's one of the most significant recent domestic terrorism cases, a test of Washington's commitment in the wake of January 6th attack in the U.S. Capitol to pursue far-right groups who seek to kindle a violent anti-government insurgency over in... Okay, that's a very, very run-on paragraph. Oh, the effort to prosecute the kidnapping plot is sprawling. Both prosecution of the defense and relying heavily on more than 1,000 hours of conversations and other events recorded by the informants or undercover agents, the defense lawyers want the case thrown out on entrapment grounds, accusing investigators of, quote, egregious overreaching. By manipulating the accused men to drive the plot forward, prosecutors will attempt to prove that the suspects were inclined toward the violence from the start. In another challenge for the case, prosecutors have made an unusual decision not to call the witnesses to stand three FBI agents with high-profile roles in the investigation. One agent was fired last summer after being charged with domestic violence. Another agent, while supervising, quote, Big Dan, tried to build a private security consulting firm based in part on some of his work for the FBI. All 14 suspects arrested in October... 2020, were members of the Wolverine Watchmen or other armed paramilitary groups. One of the six facing a federal kidnapping conspiracy charge pleaded guilty and is expecting to testify against the rest. The other eight, who participated in some military-style training, are accused in two separate ongoing state cases on a lesser charge of providing material support for terrorism. Oh... Yep, that sounds accurate. In recent weeks, the already complicated case has become more entangled, with the two sides arguing over what evidence can be presented in federal court. The informant known as, quote, Big Dan, or, quote, Confidential Human Source 2, in government papers, will be the star witness for the prosecution. Descriptions of Dan's interactions with the suspects are rife throughout the court documents. Uh, and he already testified extensively in one state case last year. Around March 2020, Dan, a veteran in his mid-30s who was wounded in the Iraq War, was working at the post office looking online for ways to practice his military skills, according to the court documents, when the Wolverine Watchman's Facebook page popped up. <laughs> uh, love that. I love when an entrapment pops up in my Facebook ads uh, timeline. Members were adherents of the so-called Boogaloo movement. Hmm. Those are the fools who wore the uh, Hawaiian shirts and march around outside of, I don't know, whatever they're yelling at in somewhere in your town, um, who seek to speed a so-called societal collapse. Those are the people who call them, well, some people call them accelerationists, I guess. None of that really means anything. Those are just words that people say. Alarmed by their discussions about targeting law enforcement officers, Dan reported them to local police and eventually agreed to become FBI informants, he said in state court. He was paid about $54,000 over the course of roughly six months of the six-month investigation. He was not alone. The FBI deployed at least 12 informants as well as several undercover agents, according to defense filings on the nighttime surveillance operation of the governor's cottage. For example, the defense described Big Dan as the main organizer. Stephen Robeson, with a long history of both past crimes and work as an informant, was there too. The, quote, explosives expert, who could topple the bridge, was actually an undercover FBI agent, as was a man in another vehicle. Yes, anyone who comes with uh, expert knowledge, probably the case. The defense lawyers using that same trove of evidence material have built an entirely different scenario of what happened. They depict the accused as reluctant puppets entrapped by the FBI agents and informants whom they say came up with a kidnapping plot. 
Within weeks of joining, Dan took over the training exercises, introducing a much higher level of military tactics, defense lawyers said. They describe him as consulting closely with his man, main handler, Agent Jason Chambers, on matters like who should participate in the two surveillance trips to Mr. Whit- uh, excuse me, Ms. Whitmer's cottage, the governor's cottage. The suspects discussing of violence on the recordings or encrypted chats were just inflammatory rhetoric, the defense says. Prosecutors say Adam Fox, 38, the group's ringleader, was, a, was living in the basement of a friend's vacuum cleaner shop where he worked, talking about assaulting the Michigan State House just as Big Dan was getting involved. The defense lawyers in the federal case either declined or ignored requests to comment while a spokesman for the U.S. attorney in western Michigan said the office would not discuss pending criminal matters. The FBI referred questions to the U.S. attorney. Sting operations using informants are a thorny tactic in terror cases. In those developed after the 9-11 attacks, FBI agents often got involved when someone expressed an interest in joining al-Qaeda or fomenting some kind of terrorist act. If the suspects had trouble agreeing on a plot or acquiring weapons, the informants or undercover agents would sometimes help them as a way of gauging criminal intent. Critics of some critics of such FBI methods, like Michael German, a former undercover FBI agent, accused the agency of acting like Cecil B. DeMille, manufacturing complicated theatrical scenarios rather than pursuing the more complex task of unearthing actual extremist plots. Mr. German, who is now a fellow at the Liberty and National Security Center for Justice, said, quote, rather than focus on those crimes and investigating them, there appears to be more interest in this method of manufacturing plots for the FBI to solve. Seems very clear to me. I don't know how you could deny that after reading this article. Prosecutors argue that they remove real threats. Niels R. Kessler, the assistant U.S. attorney prosecuting the kidnapping suspects had drawn parallels between their plans and the January 6th attack. Quote, as the Capitol riots demonstrated, an incohate conspiracy can turn aggressive, mm, can turn into a grave substantive offense on the short notice, he wrote. Well, much room for debate about the circumstances surrounding that scenario. Still, prosecutors have sought to distance themselves from Mr. Robeson, 58, another pivotal FBI informant, a paving contractor from Wisconsin, and the leader of a paramilitary group, he pleaded guilty in October to federal charges of possessing a high-powered sniper rifle illegal for felon. His list of felonies and other crimes dating back to the 1980s include forgery, jumping bail, and battery. Mr. Robeson organized a meeting in Dublin, Ohio in June 2020 involving members of armed paramilitary groups from half a dozen states as far away as Virginia and Missouri. He also hosted a field training exercise in Wisconsin in July and helped to survey the governor's cottage. He received nearly $20,000. In an extraordinary filing in early January, seeking to bar recorded statements, Mr. Robison from the trial... In an extraordinary filing in early January, seeking to bar recorded statements by Mr. Robison from the trial, prosecutors called him a, quote, double agent who had worked, quote, against the interests of the government. He attempted to get evidence destroyed and offered the defendants funds from a charity to buy weapons, among other acts, they said. His lawyer, Joseph Bugney, declined to comment. 
The entrapment defense has not been uncommon in terrorism cases after 9-11, but one that juries have not embraced. Quote, it is a relatively hard defense. You're saying my client did it, but you should not punish him anyway because it wasn't fair. Somebody manipulated him into doing it, said Jesse J. Norris, an associate professor of criminal defense in the State University of New York at Fredonia. Federal law and entrapment boils down to two issues, whether the suspect was introduced to commit the crime and what, to what extent he was disposed toward it. The latter is a gray area, mostly because prosecutors can use almost any conversa- conversation referencing violence as proof, legal experts said. The three defendants in one state case are also seeking to have it dismissed on entrapment grounds. Defense lawyers in the federal case say in court papers that it was Mr. Robeson, an informant, who broached the kidnapping idea at the Ohio meeting where four of the 15 militia representatives were informants. The prosecution holds that two of the men charged, Mr. Fox and Barry Croft, first proposed the idea. In denying Mr. Croft bail, a judge quoted him from a recording made at the Ohio meeting. In a conversation that included threats of hurting people, Mr. Croft said, I'm going to do some of the most nasty, disgusting things you have ever read about in the history of your life. End quote. Mr. Croft is among several of the accused who also face federal weapons charges for exploding a homemade bomb. When the trial begins, the prosecution will have to build its case without some of the FBI agents who were central to the investigation. After the suspects were arrested, Agent Robert J. Trask II was the main government witness taking the stand during the first court hearings to describe the entire scenario. The FBI fired him in July after he was arrested and charged with beating his wife during an argument over an orgy that the two had attended at a hotel in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In pleading no contest last December, Mr. Trask said that he could not remember that night. (laughs) Something tells me he can, but probably doesn't want to. Two other FBI agents have prompted objections from defense lawyers. Defense lawyers accuse Mr. Chambers of trying to leverage his role in a case to help build a private security consulting firm that he eventually disbanded in October 2021. As evidence of the significance of his role, they noted that Mr. Chambers wrote 227 reports about his exchanges with Big Dan. Prosecutors said the defendants failed to prove that Mr. Chambers had a financial stake in the case's outcome. Defense lawyers in both the federal and state cases have raised questions in court about Henrik Impola, Dan's other handler, who has testified in court about the investigation. A lawyer in separate federal cases has complained to the FBI that Mr. Impola had committed perjury, they said. Federal prosecutors said the Whitmer case called the acquisition, quote, unfounded, noting that the court in that case had made no finding of misconduct against Mr. Impola. Nonetheless, the government announced in court papers last month that it would not be calling any of the three men to testify and sought to bar mention of the incidents saying that they quote carry a high risk of unfair prejudice confusion and misleading the jury end quote it has endeavored to downplay the significance of the three men noting that dozens of agents worked on the investigation and even if the imp- uh, even if it is impossible to fully access a case before the trial reveals all the facts said mr german a former undercover FBI agent, the revelations thus far have encumbered the prosecution's task. Quote, there is certainly a lot of lumber that this case seems to have given defense attorneys to build a story about what happened, he said. His point being that uh, the 
method through which they're building these cases does not serve the prosecution in the end. So they should probably, in the interest of crimes that have been committed and crimes that will be committed, actual crimes, if they wish to successfully prosecute them and successfully prosecute people who may actually be legitimately caught up in an investigation such as this, um, for the future of those cases to be secure, they need to change their investigation methods. Will they? Unlikely. Is what he's claiming. And seems clear. Um, let's see. Let us see. All right. Let's go here. Poor nations lose their best nurses to the rich by Stephanie Nolan. This is on the uh, front of today's times. Lusaka, Zambia. There are few nurses in the Zambian capital with the skills and experience of Alex Malumba, who works in the operating room at the critical care hospital. But he has recently learned through a barrage of social media posts and LinkedIn solicitations that many faraway places are eager for his expertise too and will pay him far more than the $415 per month, including an $8 health risk bonus he earns now. Mr. Malumba, 31, is considering those options, particularly Canada, where friends of his have emigrated and quickly found work. You have to build something with your life, he said. Canada is among numerous wealthy nations, including the United States and United Kingdom, that are aggressively recruiting medical workers from the developing world to replenish a healthcare workforce drastically depleted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The urgency and strong pull from the high-income nations, including countries like Germany and Finland, which have not previously recruited healthcare workers from abroad, has upended migration patterns and raised new questions about the ethics of recruitment from countries with a weak health system during a pandemic. Continuing on page A6. We have absolutely seen an increase in international migration, said Howard Catton, the chief executive of the International Council of Nurses. But, he added, the high risk is that you are recruiting nurses from countries that can least afford to lose their nurses. About 1,000 nurses arriving in the United States each month from African nations, the Philippines, the Carib- and the Caribbean, said Sinead Carberry, president of O'Grady Payton International, an international recruiting firm. While the United States has long... Hmm. Excuse me. While the United States has long drawn nurses from abroad, she said demand from the American healthcare facilities is the highest she's seen in three decades. There's an estimated 10,000 foreign nurses with U.S. job offers on waiting lists for interviews at American embassies around the world for the required visas. Since the middle of 2020, the number of international nurses registering to practice in the United Kingdom has swelled, quote, pointing toward this year being the highest in the last 30 years in terms of numbers, end quote, said James Buchan, a senior fellow with the Health Foundation, a British charity who advises the World Health Organization and national governments on health worker mobility. There are 15 nurses in my unit, and half have an application in process to work abroad. 
said Mike Noveda, a senior neonatal nurse in the Philippines who has been temporarily reassigned to run COVID wards in a major hospital in Manila. In six months, they will have all left. As the pandemic enters its third year and infections from the Omicron variant surge around the world, the shortage of health workers is, growing, is a growing concern about everywhere. As many as 180,000 have died of COVID, according to the WHO, others have burned out or quit in frustration over factors such as a lack of personal protective equipment. About 20% of the United States have left their jobs during the pandemic. The WHO has recorded strikes and other labor action by health care workers in more than 80 countries in the past year, the amount that would normally be seen in a decade. In both developing countries and wealthy ones, the depletion of the Healthcare workforces come at a cost of patient care. European and North American countries have created dedicated immigration fast tracks for healthcare workers and have expedited the process to recognize foreign qualifications. The British government has introduced a quote healthcare health and care visa program in 2020, which targets and fast tracks foreign healthcare workers to fill staffing vacancies. The program includes benefits such as reduced visa costs and quicker processing. Canada has eased language requirements for residency and has expedited the process of recognizing the qualifications of foreign trained nurses. Japan is offering a pathway to residency for temporary, uh, for temporary aged care workers. Germany is allowing foreign trained doctors to, pro to move directly into assistant physician positions. In 2010, the member states of the WHO adopted a global code of practice on the international recruitment of health personnel, driven in part by an exodus of nurses and doctors from nations in sub-Saharan Africa ravaged by AIDS. African governments expressed frustration in their universities in that their universities were producing doctors and nurses educated with public funds who were being lured away to the United States as Britain and Britain as soon as they were fully trained for salaries for their home countries could, could never hope to match. It goes on. It's exactly what you expect. Um, let's see. 20 Zambian doctors have died of COVID in Dr. Sampa's last job. He was the sole doctor of a district of more than 80,000 people. He often spent close to 24 hours at a time in an operating theater during emergency surgeries, the pandemic has left him dispirited about Zambia's health system. He described days treating critically ill COVID patients when he searched a whole hospital to find only a single C-clamp needed to run an oxygen needed to run oxygenation equipment. He earns slightly less than one thousand dollars a month. <sighs> The United Kingdom went into the pandemic with one in 10 nurse jobs vacant, Mr. Catton said. In some countries, making overseas recruitment a core part of their staffing strategies and not just using as a pandemic stopgap. Um, if that's the plan, he said, then recruiting countries must... If that's the plan, he said, then recruiting countries must more assiduously monitor the impact on the source country and calculate the cost being borne by the country that trains those nurses. Alex Malumba, the Zambian operating room nurse, says that if he goes to Canada, 
He won't stay permanently, just five or six years, to save up some money. He won't bring his family with him because he wants to keep his ties to home. This is my country, and I have to try to do something about it, he said. All right. Final news uh, media item today. Actually, we're going to take a quick break first. Then we'll read the last thing.
Hmm. All right. We've had enough of a break. <clears throat> Hope we had time to get a drink and everything. This is from the New Yorker, this week's New Yorker, the 24th issue. They're filing this under their uh, Department of Technology, written by Sue Halpern. Sue Halpern, should I say? Flying Aces. Artificial intelligence is transforming warplanes. Will pilots trust it? On a cloudless morning last May, a pilot took off from Niagara Falls International Airport, headed for restricted military airspace over Lake Ontario. The plane, which bore the insignia of the United States Air Force, was a repurposed Czechoslovak jet, an L-39 Albatross, purchased by a private defense contractor. The bay in front of the cockpit was filled with sensors and computer processors that recorded the aircraft's performance. For two hours, the, the pilot flew counterclockwise around the lake. Engineers on the ground, under contract with DARPA, the Defense Department's research agency, had choreographed every turn, every pitch and roll, in an attempt to do something unprecedented. Design a plane that can fly and engage in aerial combat, dogfighting, without a human pilot operating it. The exercise was an early step in the agency's air... <laughs> You'll understand why I mispronounced that in a second. The exercise was an early step in the agency's air combat evolution program known as ACE, A-C-E, one of more than 600 Department of Defense projects that are incorporating artificial intelligence into warfighting. So yes, they're actually designing, if they're designing the ACE combat program. Any PlayStation fans or video game fans out there probably <laughs> recognize that series of video games about jet fighters called ACE combat, where they're actually making something essentially named after that. It's, uh, something else. Fight Naces. This year, the Pentagon plans to spend close to a billion dollars in AI-related technology. The Navy is building unmanned vessels that can stay at sea for months. The Army is developing a fleet of robotic combat vehicles. Artificial intelligence is being designed to improve supply logistics intelligence gathering, and a category of wearable technology, sensors, and auxiliary bots that the military calls the Internet Battlefield of Things. Algorithms already already good at flying planes. The first autopilot system, which, in, which we've discussed, which involved connecting a gyroscope to the wings and tail of a plane, debuted in 1914, about a decade after the Wright brothers took flight. And a number of current military technologies, such as underwater mine detectors and laser-guided bombs, are autonomous once they are launched by humans. But few aspects of warfare are as complex as aerial combat. Paul Shearful the vice president of flight research at Calspan, the company that's modifying the L-39 for DARPA, said, the dogfight is probably the most dynamic flight program in aviation, period. A fighter plane equipped with artificial intelligence that could eventually execute tighter turns, take greater risks, and get off better shots than human pilots. Of course, human pilots being limited by G-forces. I think if you take more than, even with a G-suit and training, I think if you take more than it's, it's really a, a combination of time and G-forces, but you can very easily pass out by making what are, or even blackout, con like consciously blackout, knowing that you're going to come back on the other end of a turn, a really hard turn or something, but you can, <laughs> 
it is very easy while operating a plane in the in the capacities that you have seen even at an air show to have to come up against g-forces as a limiting factor of your um aerial maneuvers of course uh create a solid state machine that can do all that you don't have to you can actually have a higher performing plane because the thing controlling it doesn't have to be the weakness anymore um let's see a fighter plane equipped with artificial intelligence could eventually execute tighter turns, etc. But the objective of the ACE program is to transform a pilot's role, not to remove it entirely. As DARPA envisions it, the AI will fly the plane in partnership with the pilot who will remain, quote, in the loop, monitoring what the AI is doing and intervening when necessary. According to the agency's strategic technology office, a fighter jet with autonomous features will allow pilots to become, quote, battle managers, directing squads of unmanned aircraft, quote, like a football coach who chooses team members and then positions them on the field to run plays. Now, I will pause right there and, and recall a couple episodes back, I was discussing um, a fleet of drone attack craft. This That's the future, really, of what they're talking about, is they're basically saying you're going to have a pilot who will never die, who will fight many air battles in the future, who will not be in the plane to die when something goes wrong, who will be able to have so much experience that their brain will be worth much more than the machines out there is essentially the the logic behind this not to mention the life of the pilot but the idea is that you can do way more damage with a single person monitoring a field like a real-time strategy game like starcraft or something than or command and conquer for that matter <laughs> very much like command and conquer than actually flying the hardware themselves Stacy Pettyjohn, the director of the National Defense Program at the Center for a New American Security, told me that the ACE program is part of a wider effort to, quote, decompose our forces into smaller, less expensive units. In other words, fewer humans and more expendable machines. There we go. DARPA calls this mosaic warfare. In the case of aerial combat, Pettyjohn said, these much smaller autonomous aircraft can be combined in unexpected ways to overwhelm adversaries with the complexity of it. If any one of them gets shot down, it's not as big of a deal. All told, the L-39 was taken up above Lake Ontario 20 times, each sortie giving the engineers and computer scientists the, engineers, uh, the information they needed to build a model of its flight dynamics under various conditions. Like self-driving cars, autonomous planes use sensors to identify discrepancies in between the outside world and the information encoded in their maps. But a dogfighting algorithm will have to take into account both the environment and the aircraft. A plane flies differently at varying altitudes and angles on hot days versus cold ones, or if it's carrying an extra fuel tank or missiles. Quote, most of the time, a plane flies straight and level, Phil Chu an electrical engineer who serves as a science advisor to the ACE program, explained, but... When it's dogfighting, you have to figure out, okay, if I'm in a 30-degree bank angle, ascending at, a 20, ascending at 20 degrees, how much do I have to pull the stick in order to get a 40-degree bank angle, rising at 10 degrees? And, because it's three-dimensional, and speed matters even more, if it's flying slowly and you move the stick one way, you get a certain amount of turn out of it. If it's flying really fast and you move the stick in the same way, you'll get a very different response. End quote. In 2024, the ACE program goes according to plan, if it goes according to plan, four AI-enabled L-39s will participate in a live dogfight in the skies above Lake Ontario. So look out for that in 2024. Everyone pack up the kids and let's head to Lake Ontario to watch four AI planes fight it to the death. 
To achieve that goal, DARPA has enlisted three dozen academic research centers and private companies, each working on one of the two problem areas, how to get the plane to fly and fight on its own, and how to get pilots to trust the AI enough to use it. Robert Work, who is the Deputy Secretary of Defense during the Obama administration and pushed the Pentagon to pursue the next generation technologies, told me, quote, if you don't have trust, the human will always be watching the AI and saying, oh, I've got to take over. And then, yeah, there's no point. There is no guarantee that ACE will succeed. DARPA projects, <clears throat> DARPA projects are a time-limited experiment, typically lasting between three and five years. Sureful at CalSpan, well, before they go dark and then, you know, nobody hears about them ever again until they appear somewhere 20 years later. Cheerful at CalSpan told me, we're at the walk stage of the typical crawl, walk, run technology maturation process. Still, it seems increasingly likely that young pilots will one day wonder how their fighter jet acquired the skills of a Chuck Yeager. And when they do, they will be told about a refurbished Soviet-era warplane that was flown high above Lake Ontario by old-school pilots who were, in a way, writing their own obituaries. Well, yep. Pretty much. As part of the effort to devise an algorithm that can dogfight, DARPA selected eight software development companies to participate in the Alpha Dogfight Trials, an AI competition that culminated with three days of public scrimmages in August 2020. The prize was a flight helmet worn... Excuse me. The prize was a flight helmet worn... <laughs> that's how you say the word worn... The prize was a flight helmet worn by the Colonel Dan Animal Javersek, who was in charge of the program until he returned to the Air Force last year. The contest was supposed to be held in front of a live audience near Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, but the pandemic relegated the action to an online event hosted by the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins and broadcast via a YouTube channel called DARPA TV. I'm sure that's very exciting. Let's all go look that up. I want to see clips of that. Justin Glock Mock, an F-16 pilot, offered play-by-play -play commentary. At one point, he told 5,000 or so viewers, all military personnel, that the objective was simple. Kill and survive. Each team took slightly different approaches with its AI agents, as the algorithms are called. All right, we're talking about AI agents now. Episci, a defense contractor based in Poway, California, mounted an effort led by Chris Gentile, retired Air Force test pilot. The company broke the problem down into component parts and used Gentile's flight experience to solve each step. Quote, we start at the lowest level, Gentile told me. How do you control the airplane? How do you fly it and direct it to go left and right all the way up to, the tact all the way up to what tactics should we use? Physics AI in Pacifica, California, fielded a four-man squad who knew next to nothing about aerial combat. They used a neural network approach, enabling the system to learn the patterns of, successful dog, of a successful dogfight and mathematically arrive at the maximum probability of a good outcome. Hmm. Quote, the problem we have to solve is like playing chess while playing basketball. John Pierre, physics AI's principal investigator, said, you're taking shots while making split-second decisions, and it needs to be done in a way that human pilots can interpret what's going on. During each contest, the AI agents, represented by dime-sized airplane avatars, moved around a screen at a stately pace, mimicking the flight dynamics of an, an F-16. It wasn't exactly top gun, but the algorithms were doing something that would have been impossible a year earlier, interacting with each other and adjusting their tactics in real time. As the agents battled it out, Mock compared the action to a, quote, knife fight in a phone booth. 
In the decisive scrimmage on day three, Falco, <laughs> an AI agent created by Heron Systems, a.k.a. Slippy Frog, a boutique software company based in Virginia, completed, <laughs> competed against an AI agent developed by Lockheed Martin, the country's largest defense contractor. The matchup drew the obvious David and Goliath comparisons, though this David had gone through about the same number of computer iterations as a pilot who trained all day every day for 31 years. After a tightly after a few tightly fought rounds, Heron's Falco emerged victorious. All right. Fox protected him, made sure to get all the rings, and shoot all the bad guys coming to get him by the end of the level. But there was a final contest, a seasoned F-16 pilot that was going to take on Falco. All right. So Fox versus Falco. The pilot, dressed in an olive green flight suit, sat in a high-backed gaming chair, his face obscured by a virtual reality headset. He was identified only by his call sign, Banger. His identity was concealed for, quote, operational security. He'd trained with the team at APL beforehand, learning how to use the controls to guide his plane and the VR headset to track his opponent's vector of attack. On a split screen, viewers could see what Banger saw from the cockpit. Another screen displayed a virtual representation of the fight as the planes, yellow for Banger, green for Falco, jockeyed for the best angle. About a minute in, each team aggressively rolled its aircraft. And Banger evaded the AI by dropping down to 10,000 feet. Falco came around and got off a series of good shots. Banger was down to four lives. In the end, Banger failed to survive a single skirmish. He said, I think that technology has proven over the past few years it's able to think faster than humans and react in a precise, pristine environment. Banger also suggested that artificial intelligence might execute tactical maneuvers that pilots have been trained to avoid, such as flying too close to enemy aircraft, and moving at speeds that would tax a human body. Exactly, like we discussed before. Quote, I may not be comfortable putting my aircraft in a position where I might run into something else, he said. The AI would exploit that. Mock seemed pleased with the outcome. You could look at this and say, okay, the AI got fi five. Uh, flying close to your uh, target also reminds me of the, um, the cloud of suicide drones that the military is developing secretly. Or not so secretly, actually. Mock seemed pleased with the outcome. You could look at this and say, okay, the AI got five or human got zero. He told viewers, from the fighter pilot world, we trust what works. And we saw that this is a limited area in a specific scenario that we got AI that works. A YouTube video of the trials has since garnered half a million views. Brett Darcy, who runs the Heron, told me that his company has used Falco to fly drones competing... Completing 74 flights with zero crashes. There you go. But it's still unclear how the technology will react to the infinite possibilities of real-world conditions. Or how will a human pilot react to the infinite possibilities of real-world conditions? I mean, just the same, ideally. The human mind processes more slowly than a computer. But it has cognitive flexibility to adapt to unimagined circumstances. Artificial intelligence, so far, does not. It will. Anna Skinner, a human factors psychologist... And another science advisor to the ACE program told me humans, quote, aren't able to draw. <laughs> humans are able to draw on their experience and take reasonable actions in the face of uncertainty. And especially in a combat situation, uncertainty is always going to be present. In early May, I visited the operator performance lab at the University of Iowa, where members of the ACE program had gathered for a demonstration. 
OPL is the creation of Tom Schnell, a Swiss-born professor of industrial and systems engineering. In his spare time, Schnell flies loops and rolls in an acrobatic plane above the cornfields in Iowa, but his expertise was, initially, in ground transportation. In the late 90s, a luxury car company, Schnell won't say which one, asked him to develop a way to measure which people enjoyed driving its vehicles. Schnell attached sensors to drivers' faces to detect the movement of small muscles around the mouth and eyes, which indicate smiling or frowning. An electrocardiogram leads to monitor their heart. I told them that if I was going to do this work, they would have to send me a fun car, Schnell said of his early client, and they did. Schnell soon found that each sensor came with its own proprietary data collection system, which made it nearly impossible to analyze all the information at once. He built a common framework, which he named the Cognitive Assessment Toolset, and began collecting the psychological data of people who operated all kinds of machinery. Quote, they could be train engineers or helicopter pilots or people driving cars, he said. The face sensor supplied one set of data points, so did a device that analyzed the galvanic skin response, how, a subject, uh, how much a subject was sweating. Another tool looked at blood oxidization levels, uh, which served as a proxy for a mental workload. In 2004, Schnell persuaded the department chair at the University of Iowa to buy OPL's first aircraft, a single-engine Beechcraft Bonanza. I've flown that one in the simulator. Within a few years, he had acquired a jet and commercial airlines, and the Air Force hired him to conduct studies on their pilots. We did a lot of work on spatial disorientation, Schnell said. This included things like having pilots close their eyes during aerial maneuvers and then try to fly straight once they'd open them again. By the time DARPA put out its request for proposals, the ACE program in 2019, Schnell's laboratory had more than a decade of experience capturing the physiological responses of pilots. Beautiful. Good timing. Persuading pilots to hand over the controls may prove even more elusive than developing AI that can dogfight. Quote, it's probably the most paramount challenge we're trying to tackle, Ryan Heffron, the current ACE program manager, told me. Heffron is a 38-year-old lieutenant colonel with a doctorate in computer science. He came to DARPA in 2021 from the Air Force Test Pilot School, where he was an instructor. As an example, he mentioned Auto, C, uh, Auto GCAS, an automated ground collision avoidance system that grabs the controls of a plane if it is in imminent danger of crashing. During testing, Auto GCAS had a tendency to pull up suddenly without cause. What Heffern caused nuance flaps. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing that will happen to a simulator if the simulator doesn't know what exactly is happening to the plane since it uses purely the sensors from the plane as if it was real as opposed to um, arbitrary calculations. So, realistically, you can simulate that exact issue. The system has since saved at least 11 lives, but test pilots remained wary of it for years because of the early setbacks. Quote, There's a saying in the military, Peter Hancock, a psychology professor at the University of Central Florida who studies the effect of trust on technology adoption, told me. Fascinating. He must have some good papers. You need to look him up. Trust is gained in teaspoons and lost in buckets. It's not just an issue in warfare. In the most recent surveys conducted by the American Automobile Association, about 80% of respondents said that they were not comfortable with the idea of autonomous vehicles. Most drivers say uh, that they want the current systems to work better before they can trust a fully self-driving system, Greg ba Bannon, the director of automotive engineering at AAA, told me. 
The percentage hasn't moved much, uh, much despite a lot of advances in technology, and that's pretty shocking, he said. To assess trust, psychologists typically administer surveys. Quote, no one has ever come up with the, an objective measure of trust before, Skinner said. DARPA hired solar tech, an AI research and development firm based in Ann Arbor, to build a, quote, trust model, which aims to verify self-reported trust with the hard data from OPL's cognitive assessment tool set. I think that's how you do good science, Schnell told me. You take the best building blocks you have and put them together to answer very difficult questions. DARPA actually stepped to the plate and said, we want to know, are you trusting the avionics? Yeah, I think that's a worthy question. One of OPL's hangars at the uh, Iowa City Municipal Airport was filled with secondhand aircraft that Schnell had purchased and retrofitted. Two L-29 Delphins, a smaller cousin of the L-39, a painted glossy Hawkeye yellow, hulking, a hulking Soviet helicopter purchased for about the cost of a Cadillac Escalade, upgraded with a full-color night vision system that Schnell built himself. At the far end of the hangar was the simulated cockpit of a 737 jet, which is the size of a studio apartment. An Air National Guard pilot on loan to the OPL for the day lowered himself into another simulator, a rectangular metal shell that Schnell called the bathtub. Schnell hooked him up to an electrocardiogram, a series of electrocardiogram leads in order to gather some baseline data. Until that morning's briefing, the pilot knew only that he would be participating in a DARPA research project. Even now, as he adjusted his VR headset and fidgeted with controls that replicated in F-16s, all he'd been told was that the artificial intelligence would be controlling the plane while he played a rudimentary video game broadcast on his display panel. A separate ACE effort is developing a more complex version. The game simulated the battle management tasks that pilots are expected to conduct in the future to win. The pilot's eight blue planes had to shoot down eight red enemy planes. An eye tracker inside his helmet would measure when and for how long he looked up to see what the AI was doing, which could be considered an expression of distrust. He did not know that some of the simulated skirmishes were primed just for him to win, and others were to put him and his aircraft in jeopardy. But if he felt that the AI was about to do something dangerous, he had the option of stopping the engagement by, quote, paddling off. This, too, would demonstrate a lack of trust. Ultimately, the idea was to supply pilots with more information about the AI's next move in order to elicit the appropriate level of trust. Glenn Taylor, a senior scientist at SolarTech, told me, quote, We're building visual and other interfaces into the system to let the pilot know what the AI is doing and give him or her enough information within enough time to know whether or not to trust it. The researchers called this relationship calibrated trust. Phil Chu, one of ACE program's scientists' One of the ACE program's science advisors told me, if we can show pilots what the AI is going to do in the next four seconds, that's a very long time. Trust will also be crucial because with planes flying at speeds of up to 500 miles an hour, algorithms won't always be able to keep pilots in the loop. Hancock, the UCF professor, calls the discrepancy in reaction to time temporal dissonance, which is also, I, I will add, temporal dissonance, I believe, is also the same issue that they cause the lag time between input and visual display for uh, virtual reality. So that's definitely, temporal dissonance is certainly something that is going to be an issue. The biological mechanical reaction time uh, causes headaches, disorientation, all kinds of things you don't want when you're flying a fighter plane 500 miles an hour and trying to uh, potentially defend your life. Or the value of a you know $2 billion plane. 
As an analogy, he pointed to airbags, which deploy within milliseconds, below the threshold of human perception. Quote, as soon as you put me in that loop, he said, you've defeated the whole purpose of the airbag, which is to inflate almost instantaneously. In the, quote, bathtub at OPL, a computer relayed what the pilot was seeing in his goggles. As he turned his head to the right, a wing came into view, and when he looked down, he could see farmland. A radar screen at the front of the cockpit kept track of the adversary, which, in the first skirmish, quickly gained an advantage, coming at the pilot from behind and preparing to take a shot. Paddle, the pilot called out, ending the skirmish. The computer was reset. One of Schnell's graduate students, who helped design the experiment, counted down from three, then called hack to start the next contest. Forty minutes later, as the pilot left the simulator, he was greeted by Catherine Woodruff, a researcher working with uh, Sortec. Excuse me, I said solar tech before. Woodruff asked about an incident in which he stopped the encounter even though he was not in imminent danger. I had two decisions I could make, he said, to let it ride and see what happens or paddle off. After a moment, he added, I assessed the bandit was starting, which a bandit is the term that uh, fighter pilots use for um, tangos, as you would say, in Rainbow Six maybe. As I assessed that the bandit was starting to turn towards me, um, after a moment, I assessed the bandit was starting to turn towards me, and so I paddled off. For the most part, Woodruff said, the pilots in the study trusted the AI when it behaved appropriately and took over when it didn't. There were a few exceptions. A pilot who had recently ejected from his plane was deeply suspicious of the technology. The 30-year-old pilot who had observed through the autonomy, quote, was cool, but he paddled off even when his plane had the potential to achieve a good defensive angle. Offensive angle. I wanted to basically figure out my limits with the AI, he told Woodruff. What is too conservative, what is going to get me killed, and then find out that happy medium. Schnell's graduate student, who can't be named because he is on active because he is on active duty in the military, came over to listen to the debriefing. You would be the perfect example of someone who need influence because, and I do not mean this to be rude at all, you completely violated the construct of the experiment, he told the pilot. You were deciding not to let the AI do its job. Uh, that it's put there to do, even though it was actually performing fine in the sense of not getting you killed. If we want to make you a battle manager in 30 years, we need to be able to push that behavior in the opposite direction. In 2017, the Future of Life Institute, an advocacy group focused on, quote, keeping artificial intelligence beneficial, which counts Elon Musk as a member of its advisory board, released the, quote, slaughterbots. The short film imagines a world in which weaponized quadrocopters about the size of a smartphone target political dissidents, college students, and members of Congress. Nuclear is obsolete. A Steve Jobs-like character tells an enthusiastic audience at the Slaughterbots product launch. Take out your entire enemy virtually risk-free. Now, I specifically detailed this a couple episodes ago. Um, I believe it was episode six or seven, maybe it was five, uh, where I addressed the uh, military's plan once again for a future of cl- a cloud of small suicidal attack drones once again this is the basis of the technology that will operate on those so we're, we're, we're working up to that but that's that's where we're getting all right at the end of the video which has been viewed more than three million times on youtube the berkeley computer scientist Stuart russell says into the camera Allowing machines to choose to kill humans will be devastating to our security and freedom. Well, unfortunately, it's going to happen. Russell is among a group of prominent academics and tech executives, including Musk, Stephen Hawking, 
and Noam Chomsky, who signed on to a letter including a, a calling for a ban on offensive autonomous weapons beyond meaningful human control. Will, will not happen. Will control. It will continue unabated. And yet artificial intelligence is already driving a worldwide arms race. In 2020, global spending for military AI was estimated to exceed $6 billion and is expected to nearly double by 2025. Russia is developing unmanned vehicles, including robotic tanks, for surveillance systems. Last year, it was reported that Libya launched an autonomous drone that appeared to be equipped with, quote, real-time image processing to identify and kill enemy fighters. Robert Work, the, Depart uh, the Dep Deputy Secretary of Defense, told me that intelligence suggests that China has, has turned decommissioned fighter jets into autonomous suicide drones that can operate together as a swarm. There you go. So they're already, they're using uh, full-size jets. Perfect. Quote, that comes as an entirely new kind of weapon that's extraordinarily difficult to defend against, he said. That's our Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Defense agreeing with my assessment that I made two weeks ago. The United States, too, is testing the use of swarming drones. In an experiment last April, hmm, a drone swarm attacked a naval vessel off the coast of California. In October, the Skyborg program, an Air Force project to build autonomous aircraft to serve alongside F-35 pilots, tested two drones in live fight. Skyborg drones will be able to detect ground and air threats, identify suitable kill targets, and aim weapons for an optimal strike. The actual decision to employ lethality, as the Air Force calls it, will remain in the hands of a human pilot. But in 2020, the Air Force chief the Air Force's chief scientist, Richard Joseph, cautioned that, quote, we have some other questions to answer. How much autonomy do we want for a system that can deliver lethal force, and especially one that's moving at machine speed? End quote. In a paper published last April, Robert Work wrote that AI-enabled systems are likely to help mitigate the biggest cause of unintended combat engagements, target misidentification. Currently a massive issue in the hands of human-controlled drones. The U.S. military has repeatedly promised that improved technology would enhance the enemy targeting the mean friend or foe systems, friend or foe identification, machine identification like that. Tough. Uh, I, I don't know how there's hope necessarily for that. It would be extremely difficult without RFID tracking systems and all kinds of things that don't currently exist. The results have been mixed. In 2003, during the Iraq War, early autonomous weapons, the Patriot missile, inadvertently shot down a British fighter jet, killing both pilots, and a Navy plane, killing that pilot as well. A subsequent Pentagon report concluded that the human operators had given too much autonomy to the missile system. In a recent examination of 1,300 classified reports of civilian casualties in the Middle East, the Times characterized the American air war as, quote, a sharp contrast to the American government's image of war waged by all-seeing drones and precision bombs. Petty John of the Center for a New American Security told me that the military is currently developing an autonomous system to help identify targets. And that's one of the things AI still struggles with, she said. It's still a really hard thing to do, discriminating in the air when you're 10 or 20 or 30,000 feet in the sky. End quote. In 2018, researchers, researchers at MIT and Stanford found that three popular AI facial recognition systems often failed to identify the gender of women with dark skin. Two years later, a Congressional Research Service report noted that, quote, this could hold significant implications for AI applications in the military context, particularly if such biases remain undetected and incorporated into systems with lethal effects, end quote. Stop Killer Robots, a coalition 
of more than 180 non-governmental organizations, including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the World Council of Churches, has urged nations to adopt a legal treaty controlling the use of lethal autonomous weapons. The U.S. is not among the nearly 70 countries that have so far signed on. Quote, it's not just about banning a particular weapon, like we ban landmines or chemical weapons. Bonnie Doherty, a lecturer on human rights at Harvard Law School and a senior researcher at the Arms Division at Human Rights Watch, said, quote, this is an effort to preempt the development of technology that could alter the way wars are fought in a really dreadful way. The DOD's position on lethal autonomous weapons established in 2012 requires a human decision maker to remain in the loop to an, quote, appropriate degree. David Achmanek, a senior defense analyst at the RAND Corporation, oh, fantastic, whose former defense at the Pentagon drafted the 2012 directive, told me, quote, it does not in fact prohibit the development of autonomous weapons. Rather, he added, it puts in place a number of processes for review and safeguards. The commander has to be able to intervene and turn on the autonomy and turn it off as needed. Achmanek sees the development of autonomous weapons as a matter of deterrence, particularly against large-scale acts of aggression, such as Russia invading NATO territory. Hint, hint to the current scenario. Or China invading Taiwan. Hint, hint to the current scenario. Quote, can autonomy in different manifestations enable us to credibly believe we could defeat feet an invasion of this type, he said. The answer to that question is very much yes. In Niagara Falls last spring, as the L-39 was flying over Lake Ontario, the ACE program scientists and engineers gathered for their regular, regular quarterly meeting. In a session with the groups competing to design the dogfighting algorithm, Chris Gentile of Episci emphasized the program was not creating lethal autonomous weapons. Quote, what we are doing is building tools to enable pilots to execute decisions more if effectively. In, and I'm going to editorialize in a flying weapons platform loaded with missiles, guns, and bombs. Uh, but I'll continue. But as artificial intelligence ramps up the speed of decision-making, the question ultimately may be, why have a human in the cockpit at all? Quote, The Defense Department will tell you that they're not going to have totally autonomous systems, Petty John told me, but I have a hard time imagining when everything is premised on making decisions faster than your adversary does, how people can actually be in that loop. Exactly. At some point, you have to remove the person from the loop so that the machine can make the decisions faster than the human in the cockpit that you're shooting at. Or, you know, sitting at a desk flying a machine that's shooting at him. In late September... I observed another trust experiment at OPL. For much of the day, a veteran pilot sat in the cockpit of one of the L-29s, which Schnell had turned into a flight simulator. Wearing a VR headset, he performed the battle management role as the AI fought a series of scrimmages. Like the young pilot I'd watched in the previous spring, I was asked to rate his trust in the AI while his biometric and flight data were recorded. But this time, instead of using pre-scripted scenarios, he was dogfighting with three AI agents that had survived elimination. Those developed by Heron Systems, Physics AI, and Episci. Toward the end of the day, the parameters of the experiment were changed. The pilot allowed to, was allowed to paddle off and fly the plane manually. Then, when he felt like it was safe, cede the controls back to the AI. According to Lauren Reinerman-Jones, a senior scientist at SOAR Tech, the researcher's expectation was that if the pilot lost the first scrimmage, it would take several more to recover trust. But if he won the first fight, his trust in the AI would carry over to subsequent scenarios. Then, if he lost the final scrimmage, trust would decrease, but to a lesser degree, in coffee cups rather than buckets. 
Four computers were positioned next to the plane. One recorded what the pilot was seeing in his headset. Another graphed his phys physiological responses, which were translated into various types of trust processing, each represented by a different colored line. Uh, Rainerman Jones explained that a brown line displayed above the rests aggregated the data into a crude rendering of the trust model she and her colleagues were developing. Woodruff sat nearby with a computer on her lap and a recorder in hand. Every minute or so, she'd ask the pilot to assess her trust in AI. Almost invariably, she said it, or he said it was high. But during his debriefing, he expressed some frustration with the experiment. In one scrimmage, his plane and the adversaries chased each other around and around. On the screen, it looked like water circling a drain. The pilot told Woodruff, though he let the AI keep fighting, I know it is not going to gun this guy anytime down anytime soon. In real life, if you kept going around like that, you're either going to run out of gas or another bad guy will come up from behind and kill you. In an actual battle, he would have accepted more risk in order to get a better offensive angle. I mean, AI should be so much smarter than me, he said. So if I'm looking out there thinking I should have gained some advantage here and the AI isn't, I have to start asking why. Yes, exactly. What is the point? For the moment, the pilot's critique reflects the immaturity of the AI agents, which will need more training if they're able to become sophisticated enough to take on a real adversary. But it also harks back to just what Justin and Mock said at the Alpha dogfight trials a year earlier. Fighter pilots trust what works. Since then, the teams have been developing and testing AI agents that could take on two ad adversaries simultaneously, a far more complicated task. They are also beginning to develop the tools that would enable them to advance to live flight. The first step was to integrate the L-39's flight dynamics into the dogfighting algorithms and test them in drones. In the next few months, the program will be put the program will be putting the AI agents into an airborne simulator so that the pilots can experience G-forces and see how that affects trust in the AI. There's a saying, just like we were discussing before, there's a saying in the in the flight test community, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Ryan Heffern, the ACE program's manager, said, so we have to find the useful pieces. When I discussed some of these advances with Schnell, he said, everyone's a hero in the sim. The stakes are easy to overlook out inside the OPL's ha hangar. No one gets hurt or killed crashing a virtual airplane. To truly trigger this trust equation we're working on, he told me, you have to have another piece of metal coming right at you. Well, I'm sure everyone is excited to test that out. And to end everything today, I'm going to read uh, a couple little essays from The Creative Gene, new uh, book out by Hideo Kojima about his creative process, how books, movies, and music inspired the creator of Death Stranding and Metal Gear Solid, translated by Nathan A. Collins. Okay. Introduction. Memes are what connects us. I began the original edition of this book with a quote. A world without books is inconceivable. More than six years later, my feelings haven't changed, but I and my circumstances have changed greatly. Metal Gear Solid V Ground Zeroes came out in March 2014, and Metal Gear Solid V The Phantom Pain came out in September 2015. In December of that year, I went independent and established Kojima Productions. I had briefly considered stepping back into video game development, to instead support myself by making small-scale films or writing, but my desire to respond to the wishes of my colleagues and fans quickly proved stronger, and so I chose to continue creating video games. 
I rented a small office space, not even nine square meters, and began a fast-paced international search to secure staff and the software tools and engines we would need for production. As our company grew in size and eventually we needed a larger office, I scoured Tokyo to find one. Meanwhile, we were simultaneously beginning production on our new game. There were never enough hours in the day to get everything done, but even then there was one part of my daily routine I never neglected. Neglected. Going to a bookstore. This is what I do. I go to a bookstore, pick out books, take them in my hand, buy the ones that call to me, and lose myself reading them. Even on my business trips, I can't feel at ease unless I have several books in my bag. Picking out books and reading them is more than a habit I've maintained throughout my life. It's part of who I am. I was a latchkey kid, and as the first one home, turning on the lights was my duty. Opening a book and solitude was my routine. Books kept the feeling of isolation and loneliness from crushing me. My father's early death contributed to a lack of role models in my life, but inside books, I was able to find adults and teachers to guide me along. Books and movies provide only virtual experiences, but those experiences are valuable nonetheless. Of course, traveling somewhere yourself and taking in the local atmosphere would be superior. Climbing a mountain yourself would be unquestionably uh, would unquestionably provide a higher quality experience than listening to someone else describe climbing one. But a person can only do so much, and so there is value in sharing another's experiences vicariously through books or film. Stories allow you to experience places you could never go, the past, the future, or distant worlds. Or distant worlds. You can become a different ethnicity or gender. Even when you're reading all by yourself, you're sharing those stories as they unfold before you with countless people whom you've never met. We are alone, but we are connected. That awareness has been my constant savior since my childhood. And that's why, through this book, I hope to communicate the feeling of connectedness that other books have also given me. The intermediaries of those connections are memes, a concept introduced by the evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins. Whereas genes are biological in nature, memes are units of information, such as cultural ideas, customs, and values that are spread between people and passed on to future generations. I think stories could be fairly described as memes given form. As stories are passed from one generation to another, and as they are written and read, culture is carried forward. Like genes are passed on through a connection between one person and another, memes are passed on through a connection between a person and a book or a film. The world is filled with countless books, movies, and songs, so many that one person cannot possibly hope to experience them all. Consequently, I place tremendous significance upon the media I encounter within the limits of my lifetime. I would agree. Such encounters are acts of happenstance. They can seem like a product of fate. I have no idea what will connect with me, or where, or what kind of connection will form. And so, rather than wait in a passive haze, I desire to act with purpose and to cherish the encounters that result from my choices. I feel the same way about meeting people. That is why I go to a bookstore every day. I keep going so that I may create new encounters. Every day I come across all kinds of books, each offering their own unique connection. Some catch my curiosity, and some make their appeals some make their appeals to me, and some I simply pass by. Through the process of observing and recognizing those connections, I become better at finding encounters that are meaningful to me, and I further hone my sensibilities. I completely agree with that sentiment. Not everything is a winner. That is true for books, movies, and music, although other man-made, any other man-made creative endeavor. In fact, 9 in 10 are misses. But among that, other, the other 10% are incredible works of art. As someone who makes his living by creating, I'm always thinking about what I want to, 
uh, about what I want to can do to producing works that make it into that 10%. This gives me all the more reason to train and refine my ability to sense the one winner in 10. That's not to suggest I'm doing anything special through this process. I go into a bookstore, I buy a book, and when I feel a connection with it and I read it, if the book I chose was amiss, there's no reason to become discouraged. That is also part of the learning process that will guide me towards another winner. Time spent reading such a book is not wasted, but rather leads me to my next encounter. Tucked inside nearly every book on my shelves is the receipt from when I purchased the book. I keep them so I won't forget that time. Printed with the store's name and the time and the date of purchase, the receipts rekindle memories of not only the contents of that book, but of the time I spent with it, from before I left for the bookstore to the story's lingering presence after the last page was read, and of all the places around me, like the bookstore, or where I read the book. Whatever kind of book it is, even if it is a boring one, the memory of the time when we shared together is mine alone, and it forms a story uniquely mine. Then I go out to the bookstore again in search of my next encounter and that 1 in 10 winner. If I visit the bookstore every day, my route through the store will eventually settle into a routine. While browsing the store from a fixed route is more efficient, it diminishes the appeal and meaningfulness of going to the bookstore. Once my route becomes established, I stop seeing what lies beyond it. Going to a new or less familiar bookstore will disrupt my ossified patterns of thought, and though I feel lost, the experience can be fascinating. Even if the store carries the same books, those books may show a different side of themselves in a shop of a different scale, environment, or arrangement. It's like how the same word can take on a different meaning depending on its context or situation, or how you can discover a person's many different charms by seeing them within different social groupings. That's why, at risk of repeating myself, I could never stop going to bookstores. It may seem less the case now than it was before we had the internet or social media, but bookstores will still remain a repository of the most current information. One circuit through the aisles is all that you need to gain a good estimation of what is trending just about everywhere. Even today, a bookstore is a microcosm of the world. Take, for example, NHK morning and uh, TV dramas. Even if you don't follow a particular show, a display of several related books could allow you to speculate that the show must have good ratings, while a cover side up uh, a cover side up stack of an actor's photo book will tell you that they are currently popular or whether or not whether or not you know that they are i'll walk through the sports how to fitness business uh, finance slash business and manga sections will give you a bird's eye view of much of that world some will read the above and think sure but i can get that from much of the internet but that's not true the information you see on the internet comes to you filtered and tailored to your personal likings and interests. And this is where I agree strongly and why I converted to con uh, consuming most of my information through paper uh, is kind of the thought process going through. In a bookstore, information of all types comes into your view passively as you browse, even on topics that you don't follow. Bookstores create a broader context that doesn't exist on the internet. Of course, for generations that have mastered it, I'm sure the internet offers its own context from which encounters will emerge. Denying that isn't my intention, but I personally chose I personally choose to keep my focus on bookstores and books. I want to bring my physical body to a store with books on display that I can reach out and touch. I want to walk through the aisles and notice a book on an end cap or shelf, and then take the book into my hand, bring it to the register, have the receipt put inside, and read it with total focus. This insistence is not the product of an older generation's nostalgia, rather the process of choosing a book or a movie 
has a certain universality that carries over to choosing people as well. Discovering a 1 in 10 winner from the overwhelming number of books in a bookstore requires constant training and practice. You can't just go up to the store and put new release novel winner and press search. You have a limited time and clues with which to make a choice. You can look at the front cover, read the sales copy and blurbs, read the summary in afterward and other supplemental material, and skim the text inside. Then, based on those clues, you have to apply your own aesthetics and values to judge whether the book will be a winner. The process is the same as evaluating a coworker, or the proposals, or various projects or plans. They are no different than an unread book. You have to make the decision before you read. In the case of a book, the penalty for writing. Uh, the penalty for a wrong decision may simply be boredom, but in business or other large-scale projects, poor judgment could result in a massive disaster that impacts a great number of people. Unlike visiting a foreign land inside a book, the decision of where to go in real life on a vacation uh, could even be a matter of life and death. The safety from harm might cause the imaginative experience of reading a book to be judged inferior to the real experience, but that is not the case. Making contact with memes in the forms of books or movies or other media provides knowledge and wisdom necessary for going out into the real world. There are legitimate experiences all the same. The way I go about choosing books naturally results in me learning about the real world. I'm grateful that many critics consider my work to have originality and a distinctive creative vision. I can safely say that going to bookstores and picking out books is part of what makes that possible. By training my eye and my aesthetic perceptivity to find winners, I form my own viewpoint and values, which yield creative output with originality. Finding books and movies through the opinions and recommendations of others is certainly important, but from the moment you open that first page, you must enter the world of that book with your own values and sensibilities. There's absolutely nothing wrong with disliking a book that someone else recommended to you. Your judgment was made from your own point of view. If you like a book simply because someone else praised it, that would be no different than retweeting a post on Twitter. Nothing of you is there. Don't be concerned about being wrong or having a different opinion. What wonderful results might arise when you discover a winner with your own eyes and mind? Something that is a winner for me may not be a winner for you, but that's all right. I suspect the desire to communicate that idea might be why I develop video games, write essays, or contribute blurbs to movies or books. The essays contained within the book are only a tiny fraction of the books and movies I've selected with my legs, my eyes, and my mind. The selection of works, rather, the broader context they represent, formed who I am, and therefore my own creations. The memes these stories communicated to me provided the energy I used to create and to live. None have diminished in their appeal in the years I have, uh, that have passed since the publishing of this book's original edition. Once more, I take this opportunity to deliver these memes to you in the hope they may form a bridge between us. And the book continues from there, which I will continue another time. I just found that introduction to be uh, close enough to an essay. I feel like I could have... Um, I feel like it better expresses my own feelings than something I could have written myself, which is the beauty of reading and writing. And on that note, I close out um, today's episode. I encourage you, if you've listened to the entire program, to call 505-557-7932. Leave a message or, I don't know, text that number. See, see what up, say what up. Explain to me what you think about all these subjects. And until then... Uh, next we speak, let's say Wednesday, 
um, please enjoy your life and think about things other than these.